At Amgen, our mission is to serve patients. As a biotechnology pioneer since 1980, Amgen was one of the first companies to realize the promise of this new science by bringing safe and effective novel therapeutics from lab to manufacturing plant to patient. Amgen therapeutics have changed the practice of medicine, helping millions of people around the world in the fight against cancer, kidney disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and other serious illnesses. With a deep and broad pipeline of potential new medicines, Amgen remains committed to moving science forward to dramatically improve people's lives. To learn more about our pioneering science, please visit our website at amgen.com. Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Innovations in Medicine, enhancing the medical community's knowledge of science and biotechnology. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines. For more information about Amgen, visit www.amgen.com. Scientists trying to learn how new genes arise from old genes have found something else entirely. Mysterious new genes unrelated to any known genes in any genome. Today we have a medical mystery on our hands. Genes that don't seem to come out of some obvious evolutionary lineage, but just appear spontaneously. What researchers call a de novo gene, Latin for out of nowhere, loosely translated. Here to tell us about it is Dr. Daniel Barbash, a scientific sleuth and molecular biologist at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Welcome to Innovations in Medicine, Dr. Barbash. Well, thank you for inviting me. So tell us about where you found this mysterious gene. So we do our research in a not very mysterious organism called a fruit fly. We mostly use the species Drosophila melanogaster, which is, I guess you could say, the lab rat of Drosophila research. This gene was discovered in a, a search for genes with unusual structure in this genome, and it was discovered by my colleague, Dr. Xiaopei Yang, who was formerly at Yangming University in Taiwan. Now, fruit flies have been a, a genetic organism of choice for decades. I thought we knew all about the genes of fruit flies already. So it's actually been studied for about 100 years, but surprisingly, there are still many new things to find out. The genes have been discovered on a sort of individual basis over the last 100 years, but the, the full genome sequence was only available about six or eight years ago. And while the sequence is all there, actually identifying specific genes and particularly understanding their function is still something that's not known for probably half of the genome. Oh, so the discovery of the uh, decoding the genome was far from the last word on this. That's true, and that's even more true for more complicated genomes like the human genome, where the primary sequence is, in some sense, the beginning of the true understanding of genome evolution and function. So your work was part of this uh, grand project to discover these genes and their functions in the Drosophila genome? It's not really a grand project in that we our, our approach is more to look for a small number of specific genes that we think have particularly striking aspects to them and then try to understand in detail their evolution and function. So this gene hydra is one that uh, sort of came out of sleuthing around the genome like that. Okay, so the gene that you found is called hydra. And uh, what kinds of genes were you looking for when you came across this one? Well, Dr. Yang picked up on this gene because of its association with a transposable element that's called DYNE1. So transposons or transposable elements are pieces of DNA that 
can move around the genome um, in a very dynamic way. And, and they do this through various processes, but they're often considered as selfish DNAs. They can code for or catalyze their own movement. And this gene Hydra happens to be in a region of the Drosophila genome that's littered with these transposable elements. So that was the initial entry point into finding this gene. Your interest was in these transposable elements. That's right, because we think that transposable elements, because of the fact that they can move on their own, can contribute to the evolution of genome in a much more rapidly and perhaps much more importantly than things like uh, single base pair changes do. Now, if this gene hydra is from out of nowhere, I presume that that must mean that most other genes are from somewhere. Right, and we think that that somewhere is basically from other genes, so that much of the, the process of evolution is not creating things out of scratch, but rather modifying or altering things that already exist. So Francois Jacob called this process tinkering in a, in a very influential essay he wrote in the 1970s, where he imagined that the way evolution works is by taking things that are already available in the genome, meaning the pre-existing genes, and tweaking them, recombining them, altering them, dicing and splicing them in ways to create new genes from older genes. Is this the idea when people talk about a family of genes that code for related enzymes and so forth? That's correct. So things like pigmentation genes in the eye, you can clearly see evidence that the multiple copies that we have in the human genome originated from duplications of pre-existing copies so that some, at some ancestral point there was a single gene which then duplicated and further duplicated to give the multi-gene families that are actually very common in complex eukaryotic genomes. Does this happen across species as well? It's been observed almost everywhere that I know of in bacteria, in yeasts. It's very, very common in plants and it's certainly very common in complex eukaryotic genomes, particularly in vertebrates. In fact, one observes cases where entire genomes have duplicated simultaneously, leading to the simultaneous duplication of every gene in the genome. Did those kinds of things survive? Gene duplications, in some sense, are like all other kinds of mutations, where most of them are probably either not really needed or beneficial to the organism or even downright detrimental. So many of them are eliminated by natural selection, and a small minority will be maintained. And uh, the ones, of course, you see in, when you look in a genome today are ones that have been retained over evolutionary time. Now, so tell us about Hydra against this background and how it is different. Okay, so the Hydra gene was originally observed in the species Drosophila melanogaster, and then we did comparisons and found that we could find a similar gene in about uh, six other Drosophila species. So we guessed that, based on some indirect evidence, it probably originated about 10 to 15 million years ago. But we can't find any evidence for it in more distant-related re fruit flies and certainly no evidence in any other kind of animal species. So we believe that it originated in the common ancestor of these six or eight fly species and has been retained in those species. And the reason it's been retained, we don't know. So that's a subject that we're now pursuing is to try to understand what is the function of this gene in the organism? Is the presumption that it was retained for a reason? We think that if a gene is maintained for that long, it almost certainly does have some function because when genes are not needed by an organism, they tend to degenerate very rapidly. And you can see evidence of that very strongly in the human genome and that the human genome is littered with what are called pseudogenes, genes that look similar to known functional genes but can be called pseudogenes because they contain obvious incapacitating mutations that render them non-functional. 
And so this gene Hydra does not show any of the evidence of being a pseudogene or non-functional gene. Therefore, we think that because it's been maintained for about 10 or 15 million years, that it's very likely to have some function in the organism. Now, people sometimes talk about junk DNA. What does that mean in this context? People tended to think for a long time that genes did one thing, which was to code for proteins. Of course, the proteins can have many different functions, but that the way you would tell a gene was functional was if it could code for a protein. And so it was immediately obvious that most eukaryotic genomes have a lot more DNA in them than is just required to code for proteins. So one explanation that was proposed in the early 1980s was that the DNA is junk. It has no functional role in the organism, and it just accumulates for passive or parasitic reasons. Would that include these pseudogenes that you talked about? It would, because if the gene has no function, then by the way I described it, most people would call that junk DNA. Now, do we still think that's junk? The boundaries between junk and function are becoming harder to discern. And I think one of the major reasons for that is because we now realize that there's a lot of function in the genome that is not involved in coding for proteins, but is involved in other processes. So one of the the real surprises in the last 10 years is the amount of DNA that is transcribed into RNA, but RNAs that don't appear to then be translated into proteins. And some of these RNAs have been shown to have very important regulatory functions. For example, they're required to regulate the activity of other protein-coding genes. And there's much larger amounts of DNA that is either transcribed into RNA or looks like it may have some function based on the fact that it's been conserved between species, but the real details of what it's doing are not known. So I think we're at the point now where just looking at DNA and seeing that it doesn't code for an obvious protein product is not sufficient to classify it as junk DNA. For those of you who have just joined us, this is ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Barbash of Cornell University about junk DNA, good DNA, and DNA that comes out of nowhere. So if this, some of this junk DNA is actually turning out to, to not be junk, but to have regulatory functions or, or other functions, does that help us understand what's going on with this gene that you found, Hydra? Well, we believe that the Hydra gene is a protein-coding gene because it does have the potential to encode for a protein of about 250 or 300 amino acids, which is, roughly speaking, a normal-sized protein. So we believe that based on that, it's unambiguous that it's not junk DNA. But I suppose the only way to really prove that will be to make a mutation in the gene in the fruit fly and show that it causes a phenotype meaning somehow the elimination of the gene impairs the fitness of the fly. And then we would infer that the reason the gene is normally there is to carry out that function. So you can knock out that gene in the, in the fruit fly the same way people do with knockout mice and so forth? That's correct. One of the main reasons that we work on fruit flies is that we have that kind of knockout technology that's available in, in mice, but we also have other methods such as RNA interference, which is a new method for knocking down gene functions as well as the ability to screen directly for mutations in flies that allow us really a lot of different tools for examining gene function. So the sequence of Hydra does not resemble anything else that we know about. Is that correct? That is correct. So that's one of the main 
pieces of evidence that allow us to speculate that it is a de novo gene because it doesn't appear similar to any pre-existing genes. Now, have you isolated the protein that it makes yet? We have not. So we need to develop certain technologies in order to be able to do that, but it is feasible to do so, and we have some plans to initiate those experiments. That's just about all the time we have. We've been talking about de novo genes and some very interesting kinds of unusual examples of evolution with our guest, Dr. Daniel Barbash of Cornell University. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Barbash. Well, thank you very much. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. For comments and questions, please send us an email, innovations at reachmd.com. Let me give you that one more time. We would love to hear from you, innovations at reachmd.com. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Innovations in Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines.